We can be dream makers, nurturing, compassionate. Nosotros podemos ser más unidos. We can be anything. I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. So there's this concept in community organizing that if you're just providing coats to the cold or food to the hungry, that you're actually pulling bodies out of the river downstream, but that the ultimate goal is to go upstream and to figure out why are the bodies going in the river in the first place. This is systemic racism. This is intergenerational poverty. It is good to help people who are in need, but if you're helping them when it's too late, it's too late. And so the goal is to stop the bodies from going in to go to the core problem, the attitudinal problems, the systemic problems that are what appear to be beyond our control and to actually influence them. Today we're talking with a Long Island native who is now a key leader of the Jewish community in Pittsburgh and beyond, as well as a vocal advocate for social and racial justice, wage equity, and activism on anti-gun violence and immigrant and refugee issues. Rabbi Ron Simons is the Senior Director of Jewish Life at the Jewish Community Center of Greater Pittsburgh, and he is the kind of voice that we need more of in today's world, informed, inclusive, reasonable, and steady. Before joining the JCC, Rabbi Ron and several other clergy recognized, organized, and spoke up about the importance of a living wage to escape intergenerational poverty. In the process, they were arrested. The first time that I really stood up and took a risk, although it was a calculated risk, was about five years ago or so when we were waging a, a conversation about the fight for 15, that people should be able to work 40 hours a week and not still be in poverty. And I think this was a real seminal moment for me. It wasn't about the other people and those poor people. I came to realize that these people are us. It's all us. It's not good, right, if I'm being serviced by someone in a service industry where they're not feeling fulfilled. There's a utilitarian purpose to it, but there's also simply a basic human rights. The fact that we're all created in God's image and we should be looking out for each other in some way that we have to do something about it. And it was through a series of conversations over months when we realized that people were trying to address the issue from a political perspective and were failing. People were trying to address the issue from an economic avenue and they were failing. And so a bunch of clergy were able to figure out that we should be addressing this from a sacred morality perspective. And to whatever extent we had influence on it, eventually we had some success. Well, brothers and sisters, I am proud to stand with you. And the reason why we are here is because we know that love your neighbor as yourself should permeate every aspect of our lives. And we've come here to God's sanctuary out in the streets in order to let everybody know that this is a religious mandate to ensure that justice is served for all of our neighbors. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor So it was the coldest day of February that year. We gathered around 150 people or so, and we stood outside of an office building with hopes that we were going to be able to go in and actually talk to the CEO, knowing that 
we probably weren't going to be allowed to do so. And, and also knowing that we had made arrangements already with the police as far as what that civil disobedience was going to look like. And so when the time came and the police said, you have to disperse, 140 people left and 10 of us stood there. And we stood there locked arm. We said, we're not leaving. Building personnel do not want you here. I'm asking you to exit the property and head down to the So then the police said, okay, there are three ways that we can do this. Way number one is you just leave now. And we said, no, we're not leaving. Way number two is we'll shock you up. We'll put you in the paddy wagon. We'll send you down to the Allegheny jail and you'll be in processing for about 72 hours. Or we can shackle you up. We'll walk you around the corner. We'll write you summonses. And then you get those summonses, you know, six weeks from now or so, and then you'll leave. We said, we like that option, but could you wait until the TV cameras get here? And they said, yes because our wives are working for less than $15 an hour. And so the day ended about six weeks later. I got some mail from the Pittsburgh courts. So we went, did some talking to the judge. He said, why are you here? I explained our situation. I was a spokesperson for it. And he said, well, what do you want? And he said, well, we'd like to do community service instead of doing time. And he looked at us and he said, pastors, you have done enough service to this community by raising this issue. Time served, charges dismissed. And then the issue kind of just, you know, it went flat for a while. And two years later, there was an announcement that the company that we were engaged with around this said that they would raise the minimum wage by 2020 to $15 and that they were doing it not because of any external pressure. And I got to tell you, if I were the kind of person who drinks brandy and smokes cigars, I would have put my feet up right then and done that. Powerful story. I want to come back to the fight for 15 in yep. a moment. Let's go back to your youth. What attracted you to the clergy? Why did you want to become a rabbi? What I've come to learn is that the reason why I went into the rabbinate was because I want to help people. And my framework for helping people, the water that I swim in, the air that I breathe, is about Jewish culture. It's about Jewish wisdom. And earlier on in my career, I was kind of defensive about that. I thought it has to be Jewish, right? I have no reason to stand up unless I have a biblical text in front of me, right? And if I'm doing it within a Jewish context. And then it was because of the social justice work that I was doing that, that I realized that the texts are actually just one set of glasses that other people have other sets of glasses and they're looking at other texts and we're all looking at the same thing. And so that allowed me to broaden my perspective and to see my ministry as something that is much bigger and to have the privilege and the honor and the responsibility of taking wisdom that goes back some 3,000 years and applying it in the streets of our city and helping people no matter what their faith is to understand that we're all working towards the same kind of equality and the same kind of help for each other. That really excites me, even today. What you just articulated is a perspective that I profoundly believe, but that is not as in favor as it once was mm -hmm. at a time of 
great nationalism, xenophobia, fear of outsiders, and defensiveness about and retrenchment into traditional lines around religion. Do you find that as a factor in your work? And how do you continue to share this message of universality? Now, I'm convinced that if we just worry about ourselves, we're not going to be successful in applying Jewish values to the world around us. I believe that we need to be living in the actual world around us and applying these texts to people's lives. But ultimately, I believe that the reason why we go into any type of sanctuary is to recharge our batteries. And the challenge that we have today is that that traditional model is not holding up in 21st century America. Fewer people are sitting in pews. So I personally refuse to give up. Just because the system isn't working doesn't mean you give up on the values. You have to take the system and change it so that you can still be celebrating and teaching and living and guiding the community through these values. In fact, I've actually changed my language. I used to talk a lot about faith, but now I talk more about people of hope. It's not about what you believe in God, it's about the hope that you have for how it is that we can transform tomorrow. You know, I think of you as so much a, a warrior in the battle for a more just society. And I'd just like you to reflect for a moment with us about how you came to that work. My passion for social justice begins when I was really little, but I didn't actually understand it. I grew up on Long Island, Limbrook, Long Island, which is just over the Queens border. And every day, my dad would leave the house at a quarter of six in order to go to Bushwick, to Bushwick High School. And it was a place where um, people were coming to school without enough food, and they were coming to school without parental support. And he was teaching social studies. And I thought, oh, all right, that's what my dad does. He teaches social studies. And it was only until I was in my, I don't know, I guess my 30s or 40s, that I realized that my dad was actually transforming lives. He was changing communities. And I think I really came to understand it best when, as he was getting towards the end of his career there, that the community shifted from just being a community of color to also being a Haitian community. They didn't know what Thanksgiving was. So my dad enlisted my mom. They would go in on Thanksgiving or around Thanksgiving, and my mom would lay out this magnificent feast for Thanksgiving, like what we would have at our home because they felt that there was a responsibility to help them to understand how do Americans give thanks? And that's when it began to click for me that it wasn't just a job for him, that it was really a calling to do things. I originally thought I was really good at social justice because in every synagogue or school that I worked in, I would have a turkometer at Thanksgiving time. We would list how many turkeys could we buy for those poor hungry people. And I thought I was doing great stuff. But I realized that I was only putting a Band-Aid, that I was only helping people to pull bodies out of the river, as opposed to preventing the bodies from going in the river in the first place. Uh, when they asked me to take on the social justice work at Temple Sinai, I said, fantastic, we'll collect turkeys, we'll collect coats, it'll be great. And they said, no, no, we're gonna do this from a faith-based community organizing perspective. And I was in my 40s, and it was time for me to retool and to figure out what does this mean. And as I began to learn what that meant, I, I realized that I was spending more and more time in the basements of black churches. 
And more and more times, I was not only the only Jew at the table, but the only white guy at the table. And at first, I was a little bit, wait a second, what am I doing here? And then it got more and more comfortable with frequency. But then with relationship, it got more family. And it gave me the realization that what I do now is actually what my parents were doing in a very subtle way all throughout their careers. The Center for Love and Kindness is an initiative of Rabbi Ron and the Jewish Community Center. The mission is to strengthen the fabric of community by amplifying the long-held values of love your neighbor and do not stand idle while your neighbor bleeds. The center gathers people of all denominations, races, and ethnicities, and regardless of any religious affinity, all people are welcome. It is built around the belief, which I also share, that we are better together. Is that part of what attracted you to working at the Jewish Community Center in a community context as opposed to at a synagogue where you would work really from a spiritual and religious perspective, but not in a community or political kind of way that one can in a community context. I didn't know it when I came to the JCC because my initial task was to support the Jewish community's efforts to reimagine Jewish teen learning for the community at large. And we've done that in a magnificent way. What I've come to learn through my work now with the Center for Loving Kindness and Civic Engagement is that the message that we have about love your neighbor as yourself and do not stand idle while your neighbor bleeds and redefining neighbor from being a geographic term to being a moral concept is a message that is not just for the J part of the JCC. In fact, the middle name of the JCC is community. That's what it's about, that we have the opportunity to nurture people and to connect community, and it is all inspired by Jewish values. And we really like partnering with non-Jewish organizations because it broadens the scope. And we're learning so much about it. For example, two weeks ago, we had an event on gun violence, faithful responses to gun violence. And two of the pastors who spoke talked about how growing up in southwestern Pennsylvania, they were trained on guns. They were trained on the recreation of going out and hunting. And they don't want anyone to take away the guns, but they do want people to take away the weapons of war, the killing machines. And for us to be able to have that conversation and to hear from people who are embedded in a culture that we would normally think, oh, wait a second, if they like guns, I can't talk to them. That's not true. We can, we should. And that's how we're going to come to some level of consensus in that vision of strengthening the fabric of community. How do you apply that to another challenge, not just for the broader American culture, but in Pittsburgh, a particularly acute challenge because of the way this community has evolved over the last few decades? Race. You've been very active on issues of race as well and outspoken about the need for us to bridge our differences Ta-Nehisi Coates, by the way, I think opened a lot of eyes in America about what the mm-hmm. experience of systemic racism is. And for many of us, it feels like only the rawest of introductions. But you've been very outspoken on this. And what do you think needs to happen for us to begin to focus on how to bridge that divide, which seems more acute than ever in American society? It is a people-to-people experiment. We need to understand that there is no other out there. They're just human beings. 
and they share the same stories that we have, again, just with a different script. The classic story is you know, people who say, well, I don't like those people. And then you say, but what about this person that you work with? Oh, well, she's not one of them, <laughs> even though she's exactly one of them. Let's go back to my dad. I could have gone through my life understanding that my dad went to do what he did because of those poor black kids. I don't think that's what it was. He did it because it was the right thing to do, because he was being made whole, right, by helping in that community, not as the great white hope, but that this was his calling. I think we have to do that today. We need to create more opportunities for people of different races and faiths and backgrounds to actually get to know each other. And again, it's not about going into that community and painting a wall and feeling like I've done something good. It's about telling each other's stories. It's about sharing meals with each other. It's about coming to understand that the struggles that I have are the struggles that they have and the successes that they have are the successes that I have. Another Talmud story. Two guys are on a boat. One of them takes out a drill, starts drilling underneath his seat. The other one says, what are you doing? He says, don't worry, I'm only drilling underneath my seat. <laughs> We're all in the same boat together, actually, whether you like it or not. Every era has its metaphor, right? And sadly, our metaphor is walls. We're gonna build a wall. Many of us who sort of came of age in a different era remember Ronald Reagan saying, Mr. Gorbachev, take down that wall. Now we're gonna build a wall. And there's a mythology about walls that they protect us, that they are going to make us safer from some alien threat. And believe it or not, a lot of people actually find solace from Game of Thrones. You know, they believe that that confirms. Do all of you watch it? You probably, I'll try to explain it for those of you who don't watch the show. The notion is that on the other side of that wall, if you keep the army of the dead on the other side of that wall, everything's great. Pretty much what was described in the campaign, right? Feels very reminiscent. Here's what we forget about Game of Thrones because it's so painfully apparent. They're locked in this eternal battle. They're horribly divided. They destroy each other all the time. Metaphor begins to feel a little more real, doesn't it? <laughs> See where I'm going with this. Basically, your job is to tear down the wall. It doesn't mean you're the army of the dead. <laughs> but it means that you play the function of people who understand that walls lock us into place. They lock us into opposition. They protect us from growth. They protect us only from the capacity to bump up against people who are different and people who can teach us in their differences. They really only freeze us into a horrible existence. And what your job is to do is to figure out how we can fulfill our promise of tearing down walls and building bridges and creating the society that should exist when those walls are no more. Thank you. How do you convince people who are afraid and who feel their world slipping away and who think that the only way to protect themselves is to build a wall or to keep others at bay? How do you convince them that, no, we got to figure out how to all be in this together? Right. So you've done this very well, right? the siege mentality or the community mentality. I've used it a couple times now to, to share with groups and to help them enter into that concept. When people think 
that it's time to close ranks and to fight off those people that are attacking us. I think we need to help them understand that the attack does not come from the outside. The challenges actually come from us. The only way that we are going to actually improve the situation and advance ourselves is if we actually work together. We are better together. There is no reason why if I'm trying to advance the economic status of the community at large, why I would want to do that just for one part of the community and not for the other. There is no reason why if I want to try to uh, stop racism, I would just want to do that for one part of the community and not the other. We have to have a broader perspective of it because we are all on that same boat together. It's a beautiful concept at a moment of particular brokenness in our culture where the notion of coming back together and, and finding common ground, I think, has great appeal, but it isn't the dominant narrative. How do you try and bring that about through your daily work? We can go back to George Washington's farewell address, and he spoke about the fire of partisanship and how it is that the fire of partisanship could actually warm you, but if you take it on as too much, it's actually going to burn you. And we can see that all throughout American history. And the fact that we can see that in our first president says that this is built into the system in some way. It just so happens that it's really amplified right now. But of course, I want to go further back than George Washington. Rabbi Hillel and Shammai were among the first rabbis in the first century before zero as rabbinic Judaism was developing. So they lived about 100 years before Jesus. And they had two separate schools, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. Shammai was a very strict interpreter of the Torah, and Hillel was a more liberal interpreter of the Torah. It just so happens that out of the hundreds of decisions that they went back and forth on, that Shammai only won five. They say that Hillel would always begin his argument by respectfully quoting Shammai, and then he would go on to tell his argument. And because he respected Shammai, he would then win. So I happen to be a law expert only because I have watched every episode of Law and Order of every version, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Right, one of those. And I know that when you're in a court of law, the best way to win is to quote back your opposition. So it's an ancient concept, right, that still plays out today. There came a point in the lives of the students, the disciples of Hillel and Shammai, when they were only flag wavers and they really didn't understand the concept of how Hillel was doing his business and Shammai was doing his business, ultimately, the children, the disciples, refused to marry someone from the other school. So imagine in our world today, the animosity and the mixed marriages, as it were, right, that there are between different political parties. There were people during the election, I remember one story was in the news, a woman was broken down in her car and she had a, a Clinton sticker on the car. And the tow truck came and he said, I won't pick you up, I won't help you, because you have that Clinton sticker on there. I am very concerned that we now live in an America where there are two Americas. We have to try to bring back the advice that Washington gave us, we have to try to bring back the wholeness that we learned from Hillel and Shammai that we have a responsibility to listen to each other. And it's okay to differ. And just because you differ doesn't mean that you have to demonize the opposition. 
So again, an idea that is challenged today. So as you are out through the Center for Loving Kindness, which, by the way, is a lovely invocation of a Buddhist concept as well. Look at that. We share things. Right. Amazing. <laughs> what gives you hope in this work? The hope in the work is both around the morality of it, knowing that we're doing the right thing, and how many people have embraced the concept. I'm inspired by the vision of it. I'm inspired by the people that want us to actually do this. When we do events like on the environment or on racism or on gun violence, there are people that come up to us anecdotally and say, I want to thank you because the JCC has always been a pillar of the community, but boy, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing now. I am well aware also that in many cases, we are preaching to the choir. The people that self-select to come to events that we're offering are people that probably kind of agree with us. But it reminds me of the story that Elie Wiesel tells, the great Holocaust survivor. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And you might remember that in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah is like the Las Vegas of the day, right? Everything happens there and, you know, you don't tell anyone about it. He talks about a righteous man who's walking through the streets of Sodom and Gomorrah saying, you have to repent, you have to fix this, you have to change, you have to act more morally. And a little kid comes up to him and says, mister, don't you know they're not listening to you? And the righteous man says, it doesn't make a difference. I am sharing this message and I will continue to scream it because I have to remind myself that this is what is right. So I believe that as we find our moral center, and that moral center is based on the concept that we have to love our neighbors, that we have to stand up for people who are suffering, that we will slowly but surely change the attitude of the community around us. You've put yourself on the line around that message. Um, going back actually before your time at the JCC, you fought for the fight for 15. You engaged in civil disobedience. Uh, and you got arrested as part of that. Did you pay a price for that? I think I would have paid a price if I didn't do it. I was so deep into the conversation that I had to go to the next step with it. Next year, I'm going to celebrate my 25th year in the rabbinate. And my seminary, the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, provides us with an honorary doctorate of divinity once we have celebrated 25 years. All I had to do was fill out some forms. One of the questions on the forums was, what are you most proud of? And it came so quickly to me that I was able to say that I was proud that I actually made a difference in people's lives, people who I actually don't know, people who I rarely interact with, but I know it was the right thing to do. I was sitting at a table at the University of Pittsburgh Institute on Politics telling this story to some students, and one girl said, oh, I work in that organization, and that's why every two months I get a note that says I'm getting an 11 cents an hour raise in order to get me to 15. Thank you. Mm. Because the movement was there and because we have a responsibility to actually repair the brokenness that's in our world, we will pay much more of a personal price and a collective price if we don't do something about it. We have to be the ones walking in the streets of the city saying that there's something wrong and there's a better way, not just so that other people will hear it, but to remind ourselves so that we hear it.
Thank you, Rabbi Ron Simons, for being an unyielding voice for equity and kindness. I think the takeaway for the rest of us, if there is only one, is that what we were taught as children is perhaps the secret to thriving as adults. Simple lessons. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not stand by idly as your neighbor bleeds. And I especially like the notion that neighbor is not a geographic concept, but a moral one. We are all neighbors, one to another, and accepting this as our common moral tenet will strengthen our communities, our country, and our world. And never have we needed to understand that lesson more than we seem to today. Thank you.